Hello, and welcome to Fast Fast the Past, the Theme Park History Podcast, Episode 12. Have you ever wondered what is the origin story behind your favorite attractions and theme parks? Well, you're in the right place. However, today, as is often the case, we're going to talk about things that you've likely never even heard of in a new take on our Lost Land series, where we discuss the lost resorts of Disney history. Hello, I'm your host, Austin Carroll. I'm a history nerd, a former Disneyland cast member, and a current annual pass holder at Disneyland Resort. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoy learning about resorts that may have only briefly existed or never existed at all. As you know, I really enjoy sharing these fun bits of theme park history and trivia with you listeners. Now that it's December, it's officially skiing season. So today we're going to hit the slopes and take a double black diamond run into the Walt Disney Company archives with a look at a lost resort of the Disney Empire. Today, of course, we will be talking about Disney's Mineral King Ski Village. Disney's rarely remembered and disastrous foray into creating a skiing destination within California's Sequoia National Park. Originally envisioned as a five-story resort with over a thousand rooms, surrounded by a movie theater, general store, pools, ice rinks, tennis courts, a golf course, and 22 lifts to the slopes, we'll take a gander at what would have been a Disney vacation like no other, if it came to fruition. So without further ado, let's take a look into the lost land that goes down in history as one of Disney's most ambitious and well-publicized failures. Disney's Mineral King Ski Village. Nowadays, Mineral King Valley is a remote hideaway within California's Sequoia National Park, accessible only by a foot trail or by a winding, treacherous automobile road. Surrounded by the Southern Sierra Nevada Mountains, you would be hard-pressed to find anything besides hiking, much less a meet-and-greet with a famous mouse or two. But in the late 1960s, this mountain glacier valley paradise of snowmelt streams, white fir forests, and hulking granite peaks nearly became home to a massive ski resort developed by who else but Walt Disney Productions, of course later renamed to the Walt Disney Company. Is that even possible? Well, in February 1965, the U.S. Forest Service issued a call inviting proposals for a ski resort in the valley, then part of Sequoia National Forest. Note, this is before it became a protected national park. In fact, Congress would have likely already incorporated Mineral King into the park by 1965, if not for the area's history as a mining district. When Congress enlarged the national park boundaries in 1926, a doctrine of worthless lands still governed the preservation of national parkland. In other words, areas that could be exploited as farmland or for their mineral resources were excluded from national park protection. Because mining could have possibly returned to this part in Mineral King, Congress left the area in the hands of the Forest Service which largely managed public lands as economic rather than scenic or biological resources. That is why they were allowed exclusively to source proposals for a ski resort in the valley. Six proposals were ultimately submitted to the committee, and they announced their decision about a week before Christmas. 
The right to develop the Mineral King area of Sequoia National Forest was awarded to Walt Disney Productions in 1965. An avid skier, Walt Disney had served as director of pageantry in the 1960 Winter Olympics in California. An earlier trip to the Swiss Alps for the production of Third Man on the Mountain inspired Disney to install a steel and fiberglass one one-hundredth scale replica of the Matterhorn at Disneyland. Now he would finish his vision and build an alpine village among the real snow-capped mountains in the Sierra Nevada. A wire service quoted Walt Disney, When I first saw Mineral King five years ago, I thought it was the most beautiful spots I've ever seen, and we want to keep it that way. To Walt Disney, that meant a self-contained alpine village designed to preserve the natural surroundings. This was December 1965, just one month after Walt Disney had announced that he had purchased the 27,000 acres south of Orlando, Florida for a project earmarked as Disneyland East. Of course, this massive $70 million project would come to be Walt Disney World. However, despite this sizable investment on the East Coast, the Walt Disney Company was confident that both projects would be a smashing success. According to the Los Angeles Times article that ran that fateful day, the Disney firm, in its winning bid, estimated the new facility, 227 miles northeast of Los Angeles, would attract 2.5 million visitors annually, 800,000 of them from out of state, and by 1976, the first year of operation. Walt Disney had ambitious plans for the park. He envisioned that at Mineral Valley, visitors would find an alpine resort that would redefine ski resorts, just as Disneyland had redefined amusement parks. The spring 1966 issue of Disney News, the official publication of the Magic Kingdom Club, included a description of what Mineral King Ski Village would include. Ideally located equidistant from Los Angeles and San Francisco, Walt Disney hoped to provide year-round recreational activities for people of all ages and athletic abilities. He was excited to open up this inaccessible, picturesque area to skiers in the winter and hikers, campers, and sightseers in the warm months, with 22 planned ski lifts and gondolas up the surrounding 12,400-foot mountains and eight glacial circles around the village. Ski runs would be epic, up to four miles long, with drops of 3,700 feet. Disney realized that ski operations alone were rarely profitable, but visitor services would provide projected revenues of an estimated $600 million over the resort's first decade. Ten restaurants and cafes were planned to feed the hungry crowds, including a 150-seat coffee shop perched on top of Eagle Crest Ridge, 11,000 feet above sea level. In the basin, the completely self-contained village would accommodate visitors with a chapel, ice skating ring, convenience shops, restaurants, conference center, and low-cost lodging facilities. There would also be two large hotels and even a health fort. The magazine described that already there was a snow survey group spending the winter at Mineral King to study snow conditions and collect data for construction. Much of the resort was going to be car-free. Day-use visitors and hotel guests would park downslope in an 8- to 10-story garage with room for about 4,000 automobiles. From there, a cog railway would transport them to the main resort area. 
The Disney plan also called for extensive support infrastructure, including water storage tanks and a sewage treatment facility. The resort's price tag? $35 million. By comparison, Disneyland had only cost $17 million in 1955, just 10 years earlier. Of course, being a Disney resort, there had to be some sort of entertainment. I'm sure many listeners will be surprised to learn that the Country Bear Jamboree, later to appear at Disneyland and still found at Disney World's Magic Kingdom, was originally designed for Mineral King Ski Village. The auto animatronic bears were planned as entertainers for one of the restaurants, a la Chuck E. Cheese. Now, at this point, the company's entire approach had been based on the absolute necessity to preserve the site's natural beauty and alpine character. Excluding automobiles helped with this. But Walt Disney also had other plans to preserve the area's natural character. He planned on camouflaging the ski lifts, situating the village so it would not be seen from the valley entrance, and then also putting the service areas, such as trash, maid service, and security, underneath the village in about a 600,000-square-foot facility beneath the village. This is kind of similar to how he used the same kind of idea in Walt Disney World in Magic Kingdom with the underground tunnels for services. The grandiose plans of Epcot, Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, and Mineral King were moving right along when, on December 15, 1966, Walt Disney's death shook the company to its core. Now, the Mineral King Ski Village Resort was destined to be one of the last remainders of his great vision and creativity when it opened. In fact, it was likely to be the final one, or so it seemed at the time. In order for that to happen, the remaining Walt Disney employees had to contend with just the little matter of how these million visitors would even reach the Mineral King Basin to partake in the last great remnant of Walt Disney's creativity. After all, Mineral King was a place surrounded by mountains on all sides, accessible only with an adequate, mostly dirt road prone to avalanches and icy conditions. In 1966, the existing road was narrow, partially paved, and only usable in months free from snowfall not what you want in a ski resort. In fact, this treacherous road had already killed another ski resort proposal in the Mineral King Basin back in 1948. Recognizing this, the U.S. Forest Service made the up-in-the-air 30-year permit contingent on an all-weather 25-mile highway. The route would go through Sequoia National Park, which then surrounded the Mineral King Basin on three sides. However, while the National Forest was under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Sequoia National Park was under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Department of the Interior. With bureaucratic pressure and the idea that Mineral King had possibly the greatest potential for winter sports anywhere in the Sierra Nevada mountains, there was some movement towards a road earlier in 1958. Tule County asked the state of California to put in an all-weather road. There was finally some progress in 1965 when the state legislature transferred the county road into the state highway system in anticipation of this road being built. However, if you thought that 2,500 permanent jobs would be enough to ensure the road would move forward, you clearly do not know the U.S. Department of the Interior. 
time, things looked to be on track. As 1966 progressed, plans for the highway moved ahead. In October, California Governor Edmund G. Pat Brown announced a $3 million federal grant towards the $25 million price tag for the road. His next step would be to apply for a $9 million federal loan and to seek the balance from the California legislature. With such strong support from the governor, it seemed almost certain that this road would be built. However, in the following years after Walt's death, the Imagineers at Wed Enterprises redefined their plans. Early drawings showing modern 1960s-style structures gave way to renderings showing a more traditional Swiss Alpine village. In 1969, Disney News quoted Robert B. Hicks, Mineral King's project manager, Although structures will appear to be placed in a random formation, their location will be dictated by the natural land contours and appropriate architectural relationship, which will contribute to scenic harmony. Finally, the U.S. Forest Service was convinced and approved Walt Disney Productions' final master plan for Mineral King on January 27, 1969. Skiers could expect the resort to open for the winter 1973 ski season when the new highway would also be built. However, not everyone was as convinced as the U.S. Forest Service. From 1965, when the project was announced, to 1969, when it was approved, opposition to the Mineral King plans and the old weather road had been growing. After all, the official name of this Mineral King Basin was the Sequoia National Game Refuge. So people thought, wouldn't the construction of a massive resort by the Walt Disney Company ruin the fragile ecosystem that's a game refuge? Quick answer, probably. Enter the Sierra Club. They had still approved a Mineral King recreational development as recently as 1965 and had even pitched the failed 1948 project for a similar resort. But by 1965, the club's National Board of Directors had reversed its stance, but only by a split vote of 7-4. to four. They spent the next decade attempting to use the courts to stop the project. Their change of heart was likely at the bequest of wildest activists, who were appalled by this intrusion into this land. And they weren't really alone. Much of the nation had embraced a new preservation-oriented wildness ethic, a change that culminated in the landmark Wilderness Act of 1964, which created the legal definition of wilderness in the United States and protected an additional 9.1 million acres of federal land. If you recall, as we spoke earlier, before the land that was protected was, couldn't be used for any economic purposes. This act changed that. Even if there was a former mine on the property, it could still be protected. And this didn't bode well for Mineral King Ski Village. As far back as March of 1967, U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Stuart Aldwell, expressed opposition to the road, suggesting that an electric railway or monorail would be better. After all, the governor-backed road would still have to go through the now firmly protected Sequoia National Park. Suddenly... The bumper stickers came in, and they appeared all across California with the message, Keep Mineral King Natural. 
And just like that, the Walt Disney Company, still struggling internally after their founder's death, had one of their first and biggest PR disasters in the company's history on their hands. With growing opposition, Walt Disney Productions announced a major revision to its Mineral King plans in May of 1972. For those keeping track, this is about a year and a half before the projected opening. The $35 million resort, with as many as 22 ski lifts, ranked to a $15 million resort. However, the scaled-down plans probably had more to do with financial considerations than with any attempt to reduce the project's environmental footprint. Walt Disney Productions had opened Walt Disney World a half year before. The cost of that project, initially anticipated to be $70 million, had risen to $400 million. Besides the smaller footprint, the biggest change in the new plans was that access to the resort would primarily involve a 15-mile cog railway to be financed with a $20 million bond and operated by Disney without a profit. The railway was different than the road, obviously. It would be non-polluting, it would follow the same old road that was already there, and it would require a much narrower right-of-way than the proposed all-weather road, which, if you recall, would be about 25 lanes. This actually ended up being a good thing on their part because... Just a little bit while later, in August 18th of 1972, California Governor Ronald Reagan signed legislation removing a segment of the old weather road from the state's highway system. The Los Angeles Times quoted the governor, I am convinced that the proper development will not be hampered by the lack of a high-speed road. Alternative access methods will suffice, and in the end, better serve the needs of conservation and recreation. That's my impression of Ronald Reagan, I guess. However, road or no road, despite the governor's support and Walt Disney's dying wish and the, frankly, urgent need for California recreational activities, nothing seems like enough to save this project. It looks like the Los Angeles Times agreed, because on October 23rd, 1973, they published an article titled, Planned Mineral King Resort Appears Doomed. That is mostly due to the Sierra Club, and the lead environmental activist, Jean Croft, who mounted a huge oppositional campaign to the resort. At first, the Sierra Club centered on the fact that six miles of the proposed Old weather access road would cut through Sequoia National Park. They lobbied the National Park Service to block the highway project. But once the Park Service and its supervisor, Interior Secretary Stuart Aldwell, approved the road, the club resorted to litigation. On June 5, 1969, the club sued the heads of Sequoia National Park and Sequoia National Forest and the Interior Secretaries in federal court. They argued that the highway through the National Park was illegal and that the project improperly handed control of too much National Forest land to Disney. The trial judge issued a preliminary injunction, halting work until the case reached the U.S. Supreme Court. And the highest court in the land struck the Sierra Club a blow on April 19, 1972, when it ruled against the organization on procedural grounds in Sierra Club versus Morton. In a four to three decision, 
The court held that the organization, founded by John Murr in 1892, lacked standing to sue because it had shown that the proposed ski resort wouldn't injure any individuals. Even as the Supreme Court handed Disney and the Forest Service a victory, another legal obstacle stalled construction. On January 1st, 1970, as the litigation went winding its way through the federal court system, President Richard Nixon had signed the National Environmental Policy Act, which required federal agencies to study the environmental effects of proposed actions in detail. Despite the Supreme Court ruling in Disney's favor, they yet again had to halt construction until the Forest Service analyzed the ski resort's intended impact and published its results. As the Sierra Club amended its lawsuit to conform to the Supreme Court standing doctrine, the Forest Service prepared several drafts of its environmental impact statement. It released the final draft, a, you know, easy read, 285-page tome in February of 1976. But by then, Disney's proposal was over a decade old, and the company's executive leadership along with the skiing enthusiasts and many in the federal government, had lost all interest in Mineral King. In 1977, the U.S. Forest Service attempted to revive the resort plan, but by then, Walt Disney Productions had walked away from the Mineral King environmental fight in favor of an entirely different ski resort location on private land in Independence Lake, north of Lake Tahoe. This turned out to be a wise decision. Congress finally killed the project with the National Parks and Recreation Act of 1978. With President Carter's signature on November 10, 1978, the Mineral King area officially became part of Sequoia National Park. Today, you can still access Mineral King on that same old dirt mining era wagon path, which is now technically a one-lane automobile road. But most of the land once destined to become a mountain Disneyland is now a federally designated wilderness. Ironically enough, despite losing every battle in court, the Sierra Club left Mineral King War as winners, firmly established with activist credentials. The Sierra Club Legal Defense Club, founded in 1971 to fight the Mineral King Resort in court, lives on today as Earth Justice. Walt Disney Productions was not as fortunate. The company had continued to fight at the expense of its public image. In 1969, a company executive admitted to the Los Angeles Times that if Walt Disney were still at the company's helm, he would likely have pulled out in deference to environmentalist concerns. Regardless, the Mineral King controversy left Walt Disney Productions with a so-called public relations black eye. An illustration appeared in the 1971 issue of Rampart, had a very interesting, amusing illustration of Mickey Mouse stopping Smokey Bear from entering next to a sign with Mineral King scratched out and Magic Kingdom Pay Up written in. For Disney, the Mineral King project was not only the company's first public controversy, but also one that tarnished the company's nature-friendly reputation, which was built on the successful True Life Adventure franchise of nature films. Before the Mineral King War broke out, Walt Disney Productions had earned 37 awards for its work with nature conservation. And the Sierra Club, ironically, had made Walt Disney himself an honorary life member in 1955. 
As for the secondary planned ski resort location at Independence Lake, north of Lake Tahoe, it also never came to fruition. Although the land was privately and not federally owned, the project was also fraught with environmental challenges. Peter Carlson, the project lead for Disney's Independence Lake Ski Village, is quoted as saying, There was always some sort of environmental activism against the project by the people of Truckee. I always thought it was short-sighted. They were worried about Truckee being overrun, as it is today. Accompanied that fateful cartoon and rampant, it is the end to all of our childhood fantasies. Mickey Mouse and Smokey the Bear conspiring to tear up the wilderness. With press like that, it's easy to see why the project was eventually abandoned. I hope you enjoyed this look into one of Disney's most distressing public relations battles and what would have been an epic lost land and resort. And it's so interesting to think that there may have been a Disney ski resort right here in California, similar in scope to a Disney cruise ship. Can you imagine Mickey skiing down the mountain to open the slopes every morning? I would pay good money to see that. Make sure you send me a message and let me know whose side you're on. Are you on Disney's side, Sierra Clubs, or do you just not care? Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support of Fast Pass of the Past. Make sure you check out our brand new store on TeePublic for all of your theme park history expert merch. You can find the link at themeparkhistorypodcast.com. Email me at fastpastthepast at gmail.com if you have show ideas, disagree with anything I said, or just want to say hi. I love that. You can also message us on Facebook if that's easier. I'd love to read some of your responses on the air. You can find the show notes at www.themeparkhistorypodcast.com. And please leave an iTunes review if you enjoy the show or just want to support us. It seems silly, but it really helps our show. Without further ado, thank you for listening to Fast Pass the Past, the Theme Park History Podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode.